Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Hi, I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of Jerusalem Unplugged. In this podcast, we will not only explore the fascinating history, politics, society, and incredible people of Jerusalem, but also unravel how this city plays a significant role on the global stage. Join me in uncovering the multifaceted stories that make Jerusalem not just a local gem, but a force that resonates worldwide. Today, my guest is Refka Abu Remaile. Refka is the author of Country of Words, a transnational atlas for Palestinian literature, a fascinating project, not a book, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2023 and is fully available and freely available online at countryofwords.org. Country of Words is a digital-born project that retraces and remaps the global story of Palestinian literature in the 20th century, starting from the Arab world and going through Europe, North America and Latin America. The virtual realm acts as the meeting place for the data and narrative fragments of this literature in motion, bringing together poros, interrupted, disconnected in these continuous fragments into an elastic, interconnected and entangled literary history. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Refka, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. It's nice to be with you. So you have an amazing project. And as I said in the introduction, first of all, this is not a traditional book, but it's a website. And I will repeat the link many times. And obviously, I will post the link on the podcast notes, countriesofwords.org. But first, I want to ask you about yourself. So if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your careers, and also about the origins of this project. 
Sure. Um, I'm a scholar of Palestinian literature and film uh, as a specialization of working on modern Arabic literature and film. And I would say this project was a gradual buildup from my previous work. I didn't really know that I was coming to this point, but I think different pieces that I worked on, researched and wrote led me to this um, publication, Country of Words. Um, maybe I'll just mention a few of them, one of which was uh, this piece that I published in the Journal of Palestine Studies called The Three Enigmas of Palestinian Literature. And here it was my first attempt at stepping back from a literary analysis, let's say, of specific authors or periods uh, to start and see the bigger picture or to try and see the bigger picture of Palestinian literature. And in this article, I posed three questions. Uh, the questions were, who gets to write Palestinian uh, literature? Who gets to write the Palestinian story? Is it somebody inside in Palestine or somebody in the diaspora? Or is it all these places at once? And the other question was, how do we address uh, this uh, silence and non-linearity that is at the heart of the, of the story of Palestinian literature? And then the third question was that given we were dealing with a national literature without a nation state, how did we contend with issues of fragmentation and wholeness or the striving towards wholeness? So these questions really set me on a path that made me realize that the tools and methods and the ways we have studied Palestinian literature are not enough to tell us the bigger story and that a lot of scholarship on Palestinian literature either focused on a specific author or a set of authors on a certain period, a certain geography, but never everything all at once. So then I started thinking, how can we shift things around so we can start to see uh, Palestine in its, uh, let's say, bigger extended geography, which includes the homeland and the diaspora. And in a piece uh, which was published in the Journal of Arabic Literature, I started thinking about Palestinian literature in what I called the digital age of the refugee. And here I started thinking about the refugee and the exile as figures that I believed haunt Palestinian literature, that they're haunting it because they've never been acknowledged as being central to this history and because they have been there throughout this entire history. So I asked myself, what happens if we make the refugee and the exile um, the center of the story? How does this help us um, overcome or see maybe, or even embrace a story that is unconventional, fragmented, scattered, and extranational? that goes beyond the borders of the nation state, but goes beyond uh, what we are normally trained in, which is usually uh, along the lines of methodological nationalism. And I also started to think about the digital sphere. That's where it, it started. Uh, I was paying attention to digital projects that were coming out. And I started to think, could the digital sphere be this realm that could house and express and visualize all the different fragments of the story and, and to bring them together? 
And then a third piece I wanted to highlight, which was on this idea of uh, the novel as contrapuntal reading. It, this uh, piece focused on Elias Khoury's uh, novel, Children of the Ghetto, My Name is Adam, but actually it had wider implications uh, on this uh, project. I'm only realizing this now, of course, <laughs> I didn't realize it at the time, but basically I started thinking of counterpoint and contrapuntal reading in the way that Edward Said in his uh, book on late style, which I think not many people pay attention to this book uh, because it's about music essentially, but he establishes a very useful uh, methodology and frame uh, uh, of this contrapuntal reading, um, which I saw as very conducive to tackling fragmented and parallel uh, and overlapping histories. I can talk about this a little bit more later, um, but uh, this also this piece also helped me uh, envision the digital space as also a space where harmonious and dissonant fragments can meet and come together to be read together. Um, and of course, this then led to the PalReed project, which was a project funded by the European Research Council. This was a five-year project, and I have to stress that it was a uh, a group. Uh, a collaborative team-based project, uh, which is very different from the ways we work normally in the humanities, but it allowed us to really work hard to gather sources from all over the world to, that then made uh, the writing of this uh, um, uh, project, Country of Words, a transnational atlas for Palestinian literature possible. And then in the transnational atlas, I mentioned specifically three Palestinian scholars that really guided my work because I, I felt that I was following in their footsteps and building on their footsteps, which were Hanna Abu Hanna, uh, Salma Khadra Jayousi, and uh, uh, of course, Edward Said. And here I just wanted to highlight that the first two are often, I mean, Hanna Abu Hanna for most people in the Western uh, kind of scholarship world would not really know his work, but I really wanted to stress and highlight his work because he is so es essential to this journey um, and my journey in, uh, in searching for Palestinian heritage, uh, as he called, uh, this is the title of one of his books. Salma Khadraja Yusi, I mean, was uh, very late acknowledged and recognized for all her amazing efforts in the field of uh, literature. Um, and Edward Said, of course, is internationally known, but I wanted to highlight those other two scholars which have really guided and influenced my uh, process. You spoke about uh, digital humanities and the, nat the digital nature of your project. So I must ask, why did you choose an online outlet instead of a traditional book? Because, you know, when I think about uh, Stanford University Press, I think about uh, paper and pages to turn. And when I think about literature, it's even, I feel like a deeper connection to, you know, the idea of the old style book. Perhaps uh, I'm, uh, you know, an historian and uh, suffering from nostalgia of uh, having all of these books around instead of a digital version of the books. But I'm curious about why choosing a digital outlet. Yes, this is really important and was a challenging uh, decision for me to make because, of course, I want a book to hold in my hands and I value books as material objects. But the purpose of this, which was 
mm, there was a, a small window for me to experiment with digital humanities in ways I don't know if I will be able to do in the future because uh, the Stanford uh, University Press digital projects arm um, uh, didn't have, it's not a permanent, uh, let's say, in, uh, uh, aspect of uh, the publishing house. So there was only a small window where I could attempt to make this contribution. And I wanted to really come up with something that offered different entry points for the user. So you have different views that you from uh, through which you can enter this project. So you have a timeline view, you have a network view, you have a visualizations gallery, and you have audio interviews, all of which you can enter at, um, uh, you know, um, you can just make a decision to enter wherever you like. This is an idea that I thought is appealing for, uh, you know, trying to answer these questions of how do you deal with uh, nonlinear, decentralized uh, literary history. I also wanted to be able to connect periods to each other through a process of highlighting important uh, people, periodicals, and themes, which I did in the text of each of the chapters, which are the periods. And I wanted a way to incorporate oral history as uh, audio, but also as part of the text, so to refer to the audio, for people to be able to listen to the audio, but also to see how it fits into the story. And, you know, what's a way to bring all of this in a kind of dynamic fashion and interactive way that, um, that uh, frankly, a conventional book would not be able to do. And I wanted to create a resource more than anything that people can come back to time and time again. Um, uh, students, uh, teachers can use it. Uh, it's easy to assign. Uh, you know, it's not something anybody has to buy or uh, uh, there's no paywalls. I wanted it to be open access and freely available as a resource for the wider community and any interested uh, individual in this. Uh, so I didn't want it to. I didn't want it to face the same hurdles that academic publications face that uh, they are not widely disseminated. So I. This was very important to me as a contribution to the history uh, of uh, of Palestinian literature. Um, and maybe conceptually here, I can say a little bit more about this contrapuntal uh, approach, let's say. Um, I wanted to find a mode of representation could, that could capture this overlapping and what I saw as simultaneous fragments of the story. Again, it's very hard to do this in a conventional book. Something that is elastic and maybe also open-ended because realizing, you know, um, and working on this project made me realize that it will never be comprehensive. It will never be complete. So a form that is forgiving of these gaps, let's say, and losses and um, silences in, in the sources and in the story. And I wanted a way to read together the national and the exilic. Um, so here I tried to find, you know, a way how do I, how can I, do a contrapuntal reading of Palestinian literary history. Um, I mean, Saeed in his book uh, On Late Style, he uh, talks about uh, Bach uh, and Bach's fugues and uh, the invention at the heart of counterpoint. He also talks about Glenn Gould, who's uh, the, um, 
the Canadian pianist who interprets and reads Bach's counterpoint. So I, I took that and I wanted to expand this framework that uh, Saeed talks about in the context of music and uh, uh, music interpretation and to take it somewhere um, else that was um, more relevant to Palestinian literature. And in the piece I mentioned earlier about Elias Khoury's novel, I suggested that Elias Khoury wrote a narrative that is a contrapuntal of Palestinian literature. So what I wanted to do is extend this framework even further and offer this um, reading uh, of Palestinian literary history in a contrapuntal fashion. And maybe I can just say that the I tried, I don't know if it was successful, but the timeline view with its uh, the timeline at the top of that page, I can see as a very, very simplified uh, version of maybe contrapuntal notation, let's say, because of the overlapping periods uh, of diasporas and uh, occupation in the homeland. So, yeah, in the digital, I found this possibility to to try and capture these things, to try and experiment with these things. I think this is just a beginning. Of course, uh, other people can do other things, but um, and it, it's an you know it's a developing area where we can um, hopefully have more access to um, let's say technologies and software that is uh, adaptable to what they call right to left languages like Arabic, which are at a disadvantage right now. So there's only so much we can do, but this was the idea to really experiment with uh, these um, fragments coming together in a contrapuntal manner. I must say that one of my favorite sections and a very hard one to put in a regular book, it's uh, visualization, this idea to uh, show uh, through maps, uh, networks, again, timelines that you mentioned, but also temporal evolutions and trajectories, how Palestinian literature developed, expanded, and all of the uh, transnational connection. And, and it's a fascinating section. Some, you know, the amount of time that I spent just uh, browsing and found all of these amazing lines of connection. And I agree with you, that would have been very hard, uh, almost impossible, probably, to put in a regular book. So, before we go into the various parts of uh, Country of Words, the general feeling browsing and reading the various articles is that uh, Palestinian literature is in danger. Yes, absolutely. This is something that maybe shocked me uh, to realize eventually just how in danger it has been for the last hundred years or so. I mean, the book traces this kind of history of erasure and annihilation uh, attempts and successes in some cases. It also shows um, consistent policies to stop, to stunt, to suspend, to prevent, and wipe off the map Palestinian presence, culture, history, identity, even the Arabic language uh, is at risk here in this kind of context. And there's also persistent efforts to devastate, destroy, um, I would say, um, deculture, decivilize in a way. I mean, uh, this uh, what we are seeing now at, at very intense uh, levels that we have not seen before. I would say these have been at play uh, throughout the 20th century until today. 
And the, the transition from period to period, this was the most difficult part for me because this was not at all smooth. Um, almost every single transition involved the wiping out of the previous period so that people had to start again, start from scratch, uh, build up their institutions again, uh, build up these um, periodicals and publishing houses. And this constant stop and start, uh, start again, start from scratch is, is there throughout this history. I also wanted to highlight a history of censorship and silencing. So I've, um, as part of this kind of highlighting um, methodology that you can see in the text of the chapters, the, the red highlights are thematic highlights. And uh, there I, I highlight censorship. This it plays an important role in the silencing of Palestinian voices throughout this history. Um, the issues of press, press freedom, and imposed media blackouts, this is not new. I mean, this also is mentioned in the text of the different chapters. Um, the other things I highlighted uh, and uh, talked about was the targeting, killing, and assassinating of Palestinian cultural figures, including editors and journalists, and we are seeing this today with uh, journalists. Um, the, also the persecution, harassment, imprisonment, administrative detention, forced exile, deportation, etc. Again, unfortunately, constant, constant uh, presence on uh, the in the Palestinian literary history. Um, the destruction and looting of cultural organizations, universities, schools, libraries, archives, personal archives, personal libraries, research centers is there throughout. And also this um, policy of imposing siege, isolating Palestinians from each other, fragmenting Palestinians from each other and from the rest of the world and from the rest of the Arab world. Again, policies that have been there throughout. Uh, I also paid attention and highlighted in red, so the thematic red, the massacres that occurred because these also had an impact on Palestinian literary history in the sense that um, writers responded to these events. Uh, I, I didn't go as far as uh, uh, calling this theme genocide because I, I would have never expected that such a thing would happen in the 21st century. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I highlighted that because that was uh, also uh, important in this history. Uh, and I just wanted to mention, uh, maybe to end uh, this uh, answer with um, an example that I found so fascinating that, I mean, it was so early. I found a quote in, um, in a 1920 issue of Al-Watan newspaper. This is an Arabic language newspaper that was published in Santiago, Chile. And um, there, there was an article that described Palestinian periodicals this, so this was under the early British mandate, um, that these periodicals have water in their mouths. Um, and this was in relation to the extensive censorship that was happening at the time. And I really, it really resonated with me to read this quote now, because now I could say that Palestinian media, newspapers, uh, etc., have, I can say that they have rubble in their mouths today. That's uh, fascinating. I, I want to start talking about uh, the timeline, and uh, I would like to cover the period between 1880 to 1950. 
the Magyar. The first period of developing transnational Palestinian diaspora, essentially. Um, I was struck by the fact that you argue that most of the material produced is not public. And I was wondering if you can explain what that does mean. And also, can you paint for us a picture of a material available and how it defines Palestinian literature? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, these uh, dates that I um, used for the timeline are rough dates. Let's say they demarcate um, certain beginnings, certain endings. So in this case, the 1880 to 1950, 1880 I used just because I um, read that um, the first recorded Palestinian presence in Chile was in, in the 1880s. And 1950 is also a rough date, but in the 1950s, a lot of um, Arabic language uh, periodicals and publications in Latin America came to a sudden halt, um, especially in countries, in, especially in countries like Brazil, where there was uh, new laws that prevented um, the publication in foreign languages and um, to promote publication in Portuguese, for example. But also, there's the the loss of the Arabic language. Um, but so that's these are the general demarcations. But let me just say that. Um, this Mahjar period, in general, has never been included in Palestinian literary history. It's included in Arab literary history as a period of, uh, let's say, the development of romantic poetry. But actually, uh, that the way that it's done in Arabic literary history is focused much more on what is called the Northern Mahjar, which is the US and Canada, let's say, more the US versus the Southern Mahjar, which is uh, Latin America, Caribbean, Central America, et cetera, so South America. Um, and there they just focus mainly on Jibran Khalil Jibran and Mikhail Noaima and the, the names we already know. Uh, but very rarely is this um, period seen as actually quite strange. This is a period recognized as a period of Arab literary history, which takes place entirely outside the Arab world. I mean, no other period in, in the, the literary histories that have been written of, of Arab, about Arabic literature take place outside the Arab world, except this one. But somehow this fact just gets brushed over. And I just became so interested in how is it possible that we have an entire period of Arabic literary history that takes place outside the Arab world. So. This became for me the way to start this kind of literary history which moves between the homeland and exile and the diaspora. And in a way, this became the first transnational period of Palestinian literary history for me, which connected the local and the global in ways that I had never thought about before. So, and, and I would consider it the first period which features this transnational expansion of Palestinian literary geography to outside Palestine. Um, and in this particular chapter, I focus on Chile, even though I did research in other countries, but uh, Chile became the most important country to cover because of the uh, large number, uh, the, the Palestinian community is said to be the largest Palestinian a diaspora community outside the Arab world. Uh, so Chile hosts that community. So that became extremely important to delve into more deeply. Um, 
So um, what the main source that I used to cover this period were periodicals. Um, and as we are now in 2024, you can imagine that these periodicals are more than 100 years old. So in terms of sources, these are very, very fragile sources. And the fact that these Arabic language periodicals published in Latin America, and there's a map visualization in this chapter that shows just how many were published. It was an astounding number. I did not even realize uh, that there was so many. And this is, we're just talking periodicals. I didn't uh, trace publishing houses and other things, but because in our minds, the Mahjar is usually the United States, uh, the map shows that actually it's the Southern Mahjar that was the most productive in this period. And just in sheer numbers of periodicals being published in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile, in Venezuela, and, and other countries. So, yeah, one main source was the periodicals, but the periodical is a fragile source because it's old, but also because these were considered mainly community um, publications. So the, just a, um, something that the community published for itself, which didn't really warrant the, those host countries, let's say, to archive the, this material properly. Um, and so you wouldn't necessarily find this material in national archives um, and national libraries, it was really difficult to find most of the titles that I was looking for across Latin America, for example. Um, the other thing is that because they were uh, community newspapers, um, they uh, could potentially be found in non-conventional places, uh, but I am yet to find them there. <laughs> Honestly, I, I imagined that I could find them in people's private libraries and their private archives in boxes of somebody's grandparents. Unfortunately, due to COVID, I couldn't do this kind of fieldwork that I wanted to do um, during the project. So it was not possible for me to access private archives, but I know from accessing other private archives that there is potential to find a lot of treasures there, but it, it was not possible uh, at the time. So yeah, so the main source was became these periodicals, the ones I could find. But another source, I uh, other sources I relied on were travelogues. For example, Akram Zaitar wrote um, a travelogue of his time in um, mainly Latin America in 1947. Um, I also relied on autobiographies, I relied on memoirs. So these were also um, sources used to fill some of the gaps. Really whatever I could find to fill some of the gaps I used. There's also books that listed uh, the titles and dates of publications of periodicals and sometimes their editors. We also use these sources. These are more like reference sources. But yeah, the, the sources had to be interdisciplinary but they were also fragile and ephemeral. I want to move back to Palestine after looking at uh, the transnational dimension uh, you know, of, of the project. And uh, I want to ask about the period between the late Ottoman era and the British mandate, which are by accident my historical periods, the periods that I work on. Uh, you call these times formative and foundational for Palestinian literary history. Can I ask you why? 
Yes, this is another period that has been largely neglected in Palestinian literary history. This might be surprising for historians because I know historians work a lot on this period, but it hardly ever features in um, literary histories. I mean, I did locate some Arabic language sources that include this period in their uh, literary history, but in English language uh, sources, um, it is never included. So this uh, this period, as well as the Mahja period, I call black hole periods because these were periods I didn't personally know anything about, even though I was a scholar of um, Palestinian literature. But often we start Palestinian literature after 1948, but actually more accurately after 1967, because even the period between 1948 and 67, we often call the period of silence or, um, you know, again, another, another period we don't know too much about. But coming back to this period of the British mandate and diving into the sources of that period made me trace back so many aspects um, and the, the kind of main contours, the preoccupations and conditions of Palestinian literature to this period. And maybe I'll talk about seven things that were really stood out for me. And uh, again, I was coming to this period not knowing very much. I just knew the history after 1948. So it, it was coming to it retrospectively, but also trying to trace uh, the seeds, let's say, um, that were planted during this period that had a great impact on Palestinian literary history. So the first one was the periodicals. And um, uh, in another article I co-authored with one of my teammates in the project, uh, Ibrahim Abdo, uh, we called the article Adab Maqalat, uh, or mentioned this phrase Adab Maqalat, so the role of periodicals um, becomes very important. So Adab Maqalat is the literature of articles, let's say mainly that it's a literature published in periodicals versus being published in books. And this was a quote from Ishaq Musa al-Husayni um, in his attempts to describe the state of Palestinian literature during this period. So that really solidified the, the importance and the role of periodicals in Palestinian literary history during this period, but actually throughout the 20th century. So that uh, was one thing, the role of the periodicals. The other one is just this uh, connection between Palestinian literature and political events. Everybody asks about this. Why is this the case that Palestinian literature either is periodized according to political events? or, I mean, this is just an inevitable and important aspect of Palestinian literary history. So all the great upheavals and political turbulences of this period during the mandate period, I mean, we have uh, from the Nabi Musa, the 1920 Nabi Musa clashes to the Burak revolt in 1929, the Great Arab Revolt, 1936 to 1939, World War II, etc. I mean, this is a period full of turmoil. Um, and these events, I mean, in many ways, affected the lives of uh, the lives and works of Palestinian literary figures and preoccupied their cultural and literary production. There was no way out of it. This really imposed itself on their uh, on their work and their discussions and their debates. And in fact, I would say that 
1936 to 1939 was the first real taste of the catastrophes to come in the wake of the Nakba, because there, there was a project to really annihilate all facets of Palestinian society, culture, literature, um, through the persecution, imprisonment, forced exile of the, the main uh, cultural, literary, intellectual figures. And connected to all of these upheavals, political upheavals, comes the impact of censorship. So the impact of censorship was another aspect that I traced back to this period, which had a, an impact or a huge impact on the history of Palestinian literature uh, related to that prison as a tool of oppression that transformed writers into political prisoners and created a new literary geography, which is prison. This is something that I also trace back to this period. And in relation to prison, there's also important phrases, let's say, or terminology or themes that come out of this period that also um, are revived in later periods because of the continued prison experience. So Akram Zaitar, for example, writes about uh, a sijn bayt al-karama, that prison is the house of dignity. And he talks about political prisoners, these are writers, intellectuals, cultural figures, as al-batal al-fida'i, the militant hero, and the word fida'i will be revived in later periods, as we know. Um, so, he, so Akram Zaita really celebrated uh, political prisoners as militant revolutionaries and politically engaged heroes. And this uh, really set the tone for how um, these kinds of imprisonments, persecutions, harassments of literary, cultural, intellectual figures uh, are viewed in the, in the other later periods. Another important concept that comes out of this period in relation to prison is Emil Habibi. I'm not sure if I'm 100% sure that it is Emil Habibi that first comes up with this, but we did trace this in, in, uh, uh, in an article that he wrote during this period where he goes to visit the prison in Akka and he writes uh, about Asijn al-Saghir, the small prison, and Asijn al-Kabir. So this idea of the big prison um, that Palestinians live in and the small prison being the, the prison itself, this will really continue throughout the different periods to, to be revived as a concept and, and something that people talk about and we still talk about it today. We talk about Gaza as being one big prison. So this idea of the big prison, small prison also comes out of this period. And uh, the fifth element would be the influence of concepts of anti-colonial resistance and revolution. And for me, and uh, also for Ghassan um, Kanafani, and I will write, uh, talk about this later also, that I think this gives rise to the idea of resistance literature in later period, in later periods, um, because this is the period where they start talking about the responsibility of the writer, to be socially, politically, and culturally engaged. This is very much this early version of what we call iltizam, commitment, and resistance literature as coined and conceptualized by Hassan Kanafani in the 1960s. Um, and it's also not a coincidence that Hassan Kanafani in a later publication comes back to this period to really trace the roots of resistance uh, very much to the Great Arab Revolt to 1936 to 1939. Um, a sixth element that really establishes itself here in this period, but 
becomes even bigger in later periods is this element of the Palestinian diaspora. In this period, I talk about the Palestinian diaspora in the Mahjar, uh, but this period will mark the beginning of this extended literary geography. So we can't, so we realize we can't talk about Palestinian literature by just looking at Palestine. This is something that also comes up in relation to censorship, where we realize this, um, the fact that Palestinian writers, um, when there was periods of intense censorship published elsewhere, and that periodicals in Chile, for example, were able to publish more than periodicals in Palestine about the situation in Palestine. So we realized that we have to, to have a, an understanding of Palestinian literature, you have to expand geographically. And this becomes very much the basis of this inside-outside dynamic. This is another theme I highlight in red throughout the chapters, uh, that there is a kind of homeland diaspora continuum. So that really establishes itself when uh, one looks at these black hole periods together, these Mahjar and Mandate periods, when you look at them together, they really establish the basis for this inside-outside dynamic. And um, the last thing I would say is that um, in this period, they talk about a literary nahda, so a literary renaissance that is taking place in um, Palestinian literature, but as with later periods, this nahda, this is often short-lived, uh, stunted, stopped, suspended uh, for all sorts of reasons through all sorts of methods that uh, I talked about through censorship and imprisonment, etc. But this will come up in later periods where there are periods of a short-lived Palestinian literary renaissance, let's say in Beirut, for example. But uh, just as it was in the mandate period, these are often uh, stunted efforts uh, that cannot continue and people cannot really build on them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. You mentioned earlier the Nakba, so I guess we have to talk about 1948, the catastrophe which divided Palestinians who became largely disconnected and living under different occupations. So perhaps while broadly discussing this period, could you focus on some of the characters that are discussed in the article? And I must say that I made a choice based on my, you know, sort of uh, interest and certainly favorite uh, individuals and work. So perhaps a few words about Emil Habibi, which you already mentioned, Mahmoud Warwish and Hannah Nakara. There's a timeline visualization which shows uh, what happened to Palestinian literary figures after the Nakba, where did they end up. This took a lot of research actually because I, I didn't personally know what happened to people. Um, but it, this visualization really uh, reflects the extent and scope of fragmentation, scattering, uh, and dispossession of Palestinians after the Nakba, um, including Palestinian literary figures. Um, so here in this period, this the literary history is forced to take on a truly transnational character. I mean, this is not just a homeland diaspora continuum. This is where transnationalism really uh, establishes itself on the scene. But what I wanted to do in this period is to even though it's a period of rupture and discontinuity, I wanted to trace the continuities, even if they were negative, like censorship and prison and, and all of that. Um, but the figures that you mentioned, I mean, I tried to trace history through figures. Of course, this was one way to, to do it, by following their trajectories, following their publications, following the debates, uh, following their contributions that they made to um, periodicals specifically. And Emil Habibi is an interesting figure because he connects the mandate period to this uh, period, uh, post-Nakba. So even in the mandate period, uh, Emil Habibi was a writer, journalist, uh, an editor. He actually founded a magazine with his friends, Hanna Naqara, Najwa Qawar Farah, and Hanna Abu Hanna. They established a short-lived but um, a satirical uh, paper called Al-Mihmaz. At the time, uh, Emil Habibi lived in Ramallah, as far as I understand. And then uh, in 1948, he fled to Lebanon and made his way back to Haifa, uh, a story that is fictionally represented in his famous novel, The Pest Optimist. Um, so also, uh, Emil Habibi uh, becomes involved with the Communist Party and Al-Ittihad newspaper, which is the newspaper of the Communist Party. And it's there uh, in the mandate period that he writes this article about the big prison and small prison. So after the Nakba, uh, there is a consolidation of the, let's say, importance uh, culturally uh, of the 
communist party inside uh, Israel for Palestinians because uh, Al-Ittihad is one of the few or only periodicals to survive the Nakba and stay in Haifa. Uh, others had to relocate. Um, my, literary magazines were completely uh, shut down so, uh, uh, and uh, came to a um, screeching halt, let's say. None of them continued. Some of the newspapers uh, relocated from uh, the coastal areas to Jerusalem and then maybe to Amman, but Al-Itihad was the only one that uh, continued in Haifa. And Habibi became uh, much more involved in Al-Itihad, he became the editor, but there he begins to write these satirical columns in the style of Al-Mihmaz, which he had uh, already started uh, pre-Nakba, um, and he writes under the pseudonym Juhayna. And also Emil Habibi starts to publish his uh, short stories in Al-Jadid, uh, which is the literary supplement of Al-Ittihad newspaper. Um, so one, some of the things I traced uh, through Emil Habibi, let's say with the help of Emil Habibi, is again this um, uh, prison, this preoccupation with prison and the, the presence of prison in the Palestinian literary and cultural scene. Uh, again, Amir Habibi talks about this idea of the big prison, small prison. In the immediate aftermath of the Nakba, he actually talks about the ghettoization of Palestinians in Jaffa. Uh, he describes it as one big prison. And now we know that actually Palestinians were ghettoized in ghettos uh, and barbed-wired ghettos that were um, uh, established in uh, cities like Haifa, Jaffa, Akka, Lid, uh, which imprisoned and segregated Palestinians from uh, Jewish Israelis at the time. Um, and here, in relation to prison, there's a lot of attention being paid on uh, Mahmoud Darwish and his harassment, persecution, constant imprisonment or house arrest. Or he, uh, Mahmoud Darwish really uh, got a lot of attention um, and had extensive coverage in Al-Ittihad of his uh, imprisonment and release. Um, and Emil Habibi writes some of these articles that um, talk about this kind of a sense of crisis at the targeting and persecution of communist literary figures, uh, including Darwish, uh, who's been constantly arrested, and uh, others like Samih al-Qasim, who also gets uh, arrested and imprisoned, but he also gets um, suspended from his teaching job. This is another policy of uh, persecution. Um, and then you have uh, people following in uh, from Emil Habibi's kind of lead. Uh, you have uh, uh, people writing letters to Mahmoud Darwish in prison that are published in Al-Ittihad. And uh, one uh, is a poem written by Salim Jubran, and its dedication is to Mahmoud Darwish in the small prison. And another uh, is written by Tawfiq Zayad, and he writes, uh, in the lines of the poetry he dedicates to Mahmoud Darwish, he says, my friend with the green eyes, from my big prison to you in your small prison. So this really becomes solidified through Emil Habibi and the publications in Al-Ittihad. One other thing, because I worked on Emil Habibi in my uh, doctoral research, and I never quite understood his fascination with folk literature, Palestinian folk literature. This is Another theme I highlight, because this is uh, something that is marginalized and sidelined when it comes to talking about Palestinian literature and why folk literature and the, that kind of uh, folk literary heritage is so important to Palestinian literature. But we see Amir Habibi contributing to this effort 
where he starts to write uh, about the Arab literary her heritage because of the isolation of Palestinians inside Israel. He writes about Ajahez, and we know from his literary works that Ajahez had a great influence on his literary work. And he also begins to write about folk literature and folk tales, so Palestinian folk tales. One thing I was really interested in tracing through Emil Habibi uh, was this phenomenon of the Zionist Arabic language periodicals. So these were established by Zionist uh, political parties to target and address the what they called the Arab uh, masses in, inside Israel, so the Palestinians. And Emil Habibi wages one attack after the other on these Zionist periodicals. So that's uh, super interesting to read because uh, in some cases I couldn't access these periodicals, but it was nice to get an insight into exactly what the issues were with these periodicals and Emil Habibi. Uh, I could trace those um, through Emil Habibi's uh, writings during this period. Another thing about Emil Habibi is that he also begins to write about uh, Kafir Qasim and the massacres that are taking place. This was also, uh, there was also an imposed media blackout on what happened at Kafir Qasim. So this is interesting to see how Emil Habibi as a journalist uh, was able to talk about or write about these things. Um, I also trace Emil Habibi through other periods uh, and his his uh, work, and, and in the period after 1967, which I call uh, Israeli occupation, I see how Emil Habibi is being uh, placed in this new genre of literature that uh, they begin to speak about, which is called Al-Adab Al-Mahalli, or local literature. This is another theme I highlight in red throughout the different chapters, because I found this fascinating that there's this genre that uh, they are discussing. Um, and then I tried to trace also his links to um, uh, Palestinians in the, the 1967 areas in the diaspora and so forth. Um, as for Mahmoud Darwish, I mean, Mahmoud Darwish is really integral to this project. He comes on the scene a bit later, obviously, than Emil Habibi, but he is one of these uh, figures that I called connecting figures. He allowed me to connect so many things just through tracing his trajectory and his um, movements, his writings, his publications gave me so much insight into uh, literary history and um, and, and certain aspects of history that I didn't really know too much about. So in, in the period after 1948, uh, Mahmoud Darwish is very much involved with Al-Ittihad and Al-Jadid. He's a member of the Communist Party. He also takes part in this phenomena, which I am yet to find more sources on, but um, there's a phenomenon of poetry festivals that takes place. These are big poetry festivals that take place in Palestinian towns and villages inside Israel. And of course, uh, many in many cases, it leads to arrests, to uh, shutting them down, etc. But these were extremely important uh, arenas for these young poets to rise um, to prominence. And uh, of course, Mahmoud Darwish contributed to these poetry festivals. And the way I found information about these festivals is when periodicals printed um, the poems that were recited in these festivals. And they often, often mentioned that this was 
recited at this poetry festival that took place in Nazareth, for example. Um, and sometimes they would discuss these festivals and what happened uh, as a consequence. So that was really important. Another thing uh, about Mahmoud Darwish that I thought was really interesting but neglected often because we know Mahmoud Darwish as the greatest poet, a great Arab poet, etc. But I would say Mahmoud Darwish probably has more prose writing than poetry. And he starts his career writing about um, Palestinian poetry in this period. After 1948, he has, a, I found an early article of his in 1961 about the status of Arabic poetry inside Israel. So this is a kind of self-reflexive piece about what's going on uh, in, in poetry. Um, and Mahmoud Darwish also gives us access to this whole aspect of prison. So through him, through his writings, he, he published uh, poems that he wrote in prison in his famous uh, collection, Ashiq min Filastin, a, lo a Lover from Palestine. Um, he also gives rise to this phenomenon of poet prisoners. People start talking about these poet prisoners, an entire generation of these poet prisoners, it's not just Mahmoud Darwish, but he's at the forefront of this um, phenomenon. And of course, people start to pay attention to this, especially Ghassan Kanafani, who, although there was very um, dire uh, isolation at the time between Palestinians inside Israel and Palestinians elsewhere, Ghassan Kanafani, in his tireless and pioneering manner, always found a way around things. So he actually communicated with a friend in the United States who would send him clippings of whatever was published uh, in Al-Ittihad, in Al-Jadid, about Mahmoud Darwish, about the other poets. And this gave rise to this idea of these resistance poets, the, the, the poetry of resistance or resistance literature. Now, we will talk about resistant literature in a minute, but uh, I want to ask about the post-Nakba era, which uh, is also designed uh, very well through the maps uh, on the website, and you trace, uh, you know, how people moved. And so I, I wanted to ask about uh, these Palestinian figures in the diaspora, which also obviously joined thousands of Palestinians, that were already living abroad since the 19th century, as we saw earlier. So how did Palestinian literature develop in the post-Nakba era? What were the challenges faced? There were so many challenges. This period is often yeah, called the period of silence, but it's actually not that silent when one starts to dig into the sources, especially the periodicals. What defines this period is that there is no Palestinian literary address to write to or write in or uh, publish in. So Palestinian literary figures um, started writing more extensively in Arab uh, periodicals um, and they were dispersed across different locations. Mainly uh, I talk about Lebanon, Egypt, Kuwait, Iraq, and Syria. It was very difficult to track uh, people in this period uh, just to figure out where they ended up from Sudan to Canada to uh, different places. But um, I think the main uh, aspect of this period is the rise of Beirut. I mean, we will see this uh, more in the later period, but uh, Beirut becomes this hub of Arab cultural and literary activity in the 1960s. 
Um, it's known for its openness, inclusivity. So all these Arab writers and poets and artists start to flock to Beirut, um, including a lot of exiled Arab writers from their own repressive Arab uh, regimes. So in this way, Beirut becomes the perfect platform for what I later call the, the period after this, which I call the golden decade of Palestinian um, cultural production. But um, yeah, this, these dis dispersed and fragmented Palestinian cultural efforts don't really come together until um, Beirut in, in a collective sense, let's say. There's individual efforts here and there. People are publishing, people are writing, people are attempting to understand what happened. What is the Nakba? How can we write uh, in light of the Nakba? How can, what do we, what do we think of Palestinian literature, of being Palestinian? Uh, another aspect of this period is institution building. So you see the creation of the Institute of Palestine Studies and the PLO Research Center. These become extremely vital institutions in the later period, uh, which will attract and employ um, many important Palestinian literary figures. Um, one a person maybe I wanted to highlight is Samira Azam, because we, uh, again, one of these neglected writers, even though people are paying more attention to her. But the reason I want to um, mention Samira Azam, because she um, writes in 1965, so this is a year before Kenafani uh, publishes his um, work on resistance literature. She comes up with a different uh, label, and she calls it Adab al-Maraka, so battle literature. Uh, she publishes is her article in Al-Adab, which is where uh, Kenafani will also publish his article, but she specifically asks what it means to write, what does it mean to write literature in the wake of the 1948 Nakba, and what is the role of literature during periods of ongoing battle, um, and how to write about the Nakba after the Nakba. These are serious questions that are being uh, posed. And in parallel, there's a, uh, a periodical in Jerusalem called Al-Ufq al-Jadid, um, which is uh, edited by Amin al-Shunnar, and he starts to ask similar questions. He starts to, um, he wants to create a, a new genre called uh, Nakba literature. So these efforts are happening in parallel. It seems that uh, Samir Azam would have known about uh, Shunnar's efforts in Jerusalem, but the difference is um, that Azam placed the Nakba in this long shadow that it cast, she thinks it cast firmly within Arabic literature, and she just didn't confine it to just questions relating to Palestinian literature alone. In that way, she wanted to universalize the question of the Nakba um, and what it meant broadly for Arab and global literary issues. So it, it, she didn't see it as just a Palestinian uh, question, whereas uh, the, the efforts in Jerusalem were very much a Palestinian effort. Um, but that's an interesting uh, step by Azam to universalize this um, Palestinian condition, which, um, as we know now, many people in the world uh, are living in these dispossessed, stateless, uh, dispersed conditions. Uh, um, I know of Syrian writers and poets that have turned to Palestinian literature because of their newly exiled uh, condition and to try to understand uh, how Palestinian literature and writers uh, dealt with these difficult uh, subjects. So this is um, this is what I wanted to highlight maybe about this uh, period post-Nakba.
you already mentioned several times uh, resistance literature. So between 1967 and 1982 is a period that you call a golden age in exile. And this is also the period when Gastan Khanafani spoke about this idea, this concept of resistant literature. So uh, this is uh, 1967, 1982, 1967 marks another exodus. So there's multiplicity of <laughs> expulsions that uh, happen throughout Palestinian literary history. And here we have um, the Israeli occupation of the entirety of historic Palestine. So we have new waves of Palestinian refugees joining the diaspora. And this period has fragmentation and scattering at its highest uh, levels. Um, there is, I mean, if, if I consider the Nakba as the first exodus, the second being uh, the Naksa of 1967, a third exodus during this period happens from Jordan in 1970, which is called the Black September. Uh, and then a fourth exodus marks the end of this period from Beirut, so in 1982. But in Beirut, let's go to Beirut because that was the context in which uh, Kanafani uh, published his work on resistance literature. So Beirut saw this brief moment, brief comparatively, of uh, concentration, consolidation, and intensification of Palestinian uh, literary and cultural production. So this was a coming together of sorts after intense periods of exile and fragmentation and dispossession. And uh, in one of the podcast interviews, which is with Hassan Zaktan, he talks about um, Beirut uh, at this time. So we ask him specifically about this. Um, and he talks about how it brought together not just Palestinians, but other Arab literary figures that were fleeing the Nakba. And he talks about this uh, area in Al-Hamra, which really was the, the, the heart, the beating heart of this uh, Palestinian presence uh, with its uh, extended uh, features uh, in Beirut. So the Palestine Liberation Organization was the host of this show, let's say this, this cultural, uh, uh, intense cultural production, let's say a, a Nahda, another Nahda or a Nahda in exile as I write about it. So maybe we can think of it as a second Nahda, but a, a Nahda that doesn't happen in Palestine, it happens in exile. Um, so here we have a proliferation of publications, periodicals, institutions. And here for the first time, we find Palestinian-led efforts to, to um, uh, for cultural production. Uh, so not just uh, Palestinians publishing in uh, Arab outlets, but having their own. Um, and of course, the Palestinian revolution, which is known uh, to have attracted so many people from around the world, including from Arab countries, was centered and consolidated in Beirut and at the time became the most important liberationist and anti-colonial causes of the third world. So this was a very important moment. And this is the moment that Ghassan Kanafani uh, publishes the second iteration of his resistance literature, because let's remember the first one came out in 1966, which I assume Ghassan Kanafani with all his pioneering for vision had been thinking about this well before uh, this uh, time. Um, so he uh, publishes this uh, concept of resistance literature and I would say the concept matched the mood and that's why it took off and other concepts didn't take off as much like Samira Azam's concept and uh, Amina Shannar's uh, concept of Nakba literature didn't take off. In fact, they fizzled out and uh, resistance literature dominated the scene. 
it also became for good or worse um, it became the basis and the tool and it became a measuring rod for the canonization of Palestinian literature so uh, maybe it exceeded the expectations of Hassan Kanafani um, and it attracted a lot of uh, Arab attention the fact that Hassan Kanafani has discovered uh, these unknown poet prisoners fighting for their lives being harassed persecuted imprisoned etc inside Palestine, because most Arabs forgot that there were Palestinians still inside what became Israel, um, that were leading the way in terms of resistance. And this is quite ironic because the real, let's say, armed resistance was taking place in the diaspora. But Hassan Kanafani shifted the lens to place it in Palestine, which was important for him, that resistance, direct resistance through uh, writing through literature, through these uh, figures that were, uh, whose voices are being silenced were in Palestine. This was extremely important. Um, they were not armed, they were not uh, fidais, but uh, they were the heart of the resistance. Um, so Kanafani, I would say, becomes really a very important figure. And it's not a coincidence that six out of the 10 people we interviewed for the podcast um, mentioned that Kanafani's literary output was the most important in the history of Palestinian literature. In particular, they mentioned this book on resistance literature, and in specific, his novella, Men in the Sun, Rijal Fisham. So these were the two that were pinpointed as the most important contributions to Palestinian literature that impacted the, the history. Um, also during this period is uh, Kanafani publishing on the 1936-1939 revolt in Palestine. This is a very important publication and not many people pay attention to it. This was published in Shu'un Filastinia, the periodical, uh, Palestinian-led periodical established in, in this period. So that's uh, also an important venue for uh, Kanafani to write about these things. Another thing I wanted to highlight just um, quickly about this period is that it um, demarcates also a, a period where there is direct targeting uh, through assassination of Palestinian literary figures. So there's a lot of violence, um, as well as, you know, including the civil war, massacres, uh, invasions and sieges. You have the assassination of Hassan Kanafani himself in 1972 as well as assassinations of uh, Kemal Nasser and others. Uh, so Kemal Nasser was the editor of another periodical, Palestine uh, Asaura. And these people specifically who were working in journalism uh, uh, were targeted uh, during these periods, both uh, in Beirut and abroad. So I just mentioned the, the Beirut uh, assassinations. And talking about uh, Beirut, the last uh, period covered in uh, your project in Country of Words is the period from 1982 to 1994, which mirrors what you call the collapse of a short period of centralizations, where all of the major figures basically were around Beirut. Events led literary figures once again to move across the Mediterranean region and beyond. Can you speak about this last period covered by Country of Words? The exodus from Beirut marked 
the beginning of another yet extremely fragmented and scattered and compounded forms of exile. I mean, really for me, this period looks like uh, a glass breaking and the shards going everywhere. Um, this also saw another exodus, this period saw another exodus from Kuwait in 1990 as a result of the Gulf War, another exodus. Um, but Beirut really is the one that um, had the highly dispersed uh, results. Um, so after having this brief centralization, the shards fell across the Arab world, uh, across Europe, Cyprus, uh, and uh, from uh, and the Arab world from the Maghreb to the Mashriq. Um, so again, it was difficult to trace what happened to people. <laughs> I mean, the oral interviews really helped us to understand uh, from people where exactly they went, because some people went briefly to Syria, then to Tunis, uh, some followed the PLO, went, uh, especially the, the people who worked in press and media, who are also literary figures, um, they sought refuge in Yemen and then went to Tunis um, and then tracing the what happened to cultural organizations and periodicals, many of them relocated from Beirut to Nicosia, not to Tunis as uh, the political uh, cadres uh, ended up in Tunis, but not necessarily the the cultural organizations. And then one other location I focused on in this period is Paris, which stands out as an important literary hub uh, in this period. And one figure that really helped me trace uh, this period is Mahmoud Darwish, because uh, somehow Mahmoud Darwish uh, was present in all these places <laughs> in different ways at once. So Mahmoud Darwish uh, was said to relocate to Tunis. Uh, he lived in Paris and he published his own periodical Al-Karmel in Nicosia in Cyprus. So that covers it, <laughs> I think, in just one figure and what happened to him and his trajectory. So in Tunis and other places, uh, Palestinians had to start again, reestablish their institutions, unions and periodicals, but it was all a semblance of uh, what was there in Beirut. So only a skeletal version of what was in Beirut was uh, established in these other um, places. Paris was interesting because it brought together actually the giants of Arabic literature at the time, these famous poets, Abdul Latif al-Abi, uh, the Syrian poet Adonis. Uh, they also brought their periodicals with them to Paris. It was also the site of um, a Palestinian uh, cultural production. And Mahmoud Darwish there had a very close uh, circle of um, friends around the Journal of Palestine Studies, the one that was published in French uh, in Paris, edited by Elias Sanbar. Um, so he became uh, close to Elias Sanbar, uh, Farouk Mardam Bey, who established Act Sud, uh, that published uh, a lot of, or translated uh, Mahmoud Darwish's work into French and published it, um, and Subhi Hadidi, a Syrian uh, literary critic. So he was very much exposed to a wider um, range of uh, uh, literary figures from the Mashriq and the Maghreb uh, in Paris. Um, he also contributed to a PLO-funded periodical called Al Yom Sabah, which was very political, but actually gave um, Mahmoud Darwish a very wide platform across the Arab region. A lot of people read that um, periodical. 
Um, and of course, he ran his uh, and edited, he was editor in chief of Al Kermel. So Al Kermel became the most important Palestinian periodical in this period. And it established itself as the Palestinian literary address. It was a transnational uh, a periodical. It, it reached Palestinians inside and outside. Uh, it also was at the heart of all the important debates that were going on in the Arab world. I want to ask uh, a question about Gaza. Gaza is a very hard place to research, uh, perhaps with the exceptions of few windows in the past uh, 75 years, has always been a closed place. And nowadays is a, not only a closed place, but one that is subjected to massive destructions. And I was wondering if you can talk about your experience about researching literature produced in Gaza, and also if you can perhaps comment about uh, the physical destructions and the destruction of heritage and literature and how, how this may impact our understanding of Palestinian literature. Gaza has to be one of the most difficult aspects of this project. Throughout the 20th century, Gaza was subjected to severe forms of destruction and devastation and censorship to the point that it's so difficult to find any sources. Um, we even worked with a local researcher, and I hope she is still alive today. Um, and she had a very difficult time locating the sources that we, in theory, were after. We had collected titles of periodicals, names of people, but uh, in the end, it was really the case that she, there were national archives, uh, libraries, etc., had undergone so much devastation and destruction, had to be built from scratch. I mean, really, Gaza epitomizes everything that has happened in Palestinian literary history, from censorship to imprisonment to sieges to destruction, in one place that has faced this over and over again. And I'm not just talking about the last 20 years, I'm talking about the entirety of the 20th century. And therefore, it became a very difficult place to find sources uh, in, for various reasons in various periods. Uh, Maureen Obseso being one uh, figure that we tried to um, trace just for him to give us some insights. I mean, he was a, a poet, uh, a poet of resistance, and he was imprisoned uh, both in Gaza and in Egypt. Um, but again, it's this lack of sources that made it very challenging and and often one wants to forget gaza because it's so difficult and so um but we kept trying to put it on the map because this project was you know i was trying to cover all these periods so every time we realized we have a, a gap for gaza we tried to find out why and even if it was an explanation such as you know uh, censorship during the egyptian uh, rule period uh, meant that there wasn't that many periodicals uh, being published, or that, for example, that uh, Egyptian periodicals were cheaper than Palestinian periodicals, and therefore, uh, just um, money-wise, it was didn't, wasn't feasible to publish so much in Gaza. You know, any any aspect that we could find, even if it's to say that that's why we couldn't find the material, that's what we <laughs> went after, just to at least highlight the difficulties in some cases of Gaza. In, in other cases, we did find uh, copies of journals in the West Bank and other places in private libraries as well. Uh, but in most cases, 
Um, some sources would have still existed in people's private libraries and archives, but I am not sure if anything is left now after the devastation and destruction and the targeting of universities, schools, libraries, archives. This is a history that's been, you know, full of losses, full of traumas, full of silences, full of gaps. I really don't know what methods and tools we have in, in academia to address these, um, these very, very horrific and catastrophic man-made events that have led to such a situation in the 21st century. This was uh, Refka Abure-Maile, author of Country of Words, a transnational atlas for Palestinian literature, published by Stanford University Press in 2023 and fully available at countryofwords.org. Refka, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.